today, and it seems like she has a pretty fun lesson planned for those of you adults who want to check out and go to Children's Church as well. But if you do, here's the deal, is that next week I'm going to make you teach Children's Church um, now that you'll be updated on the plans and how to do it. You know, we've been, there was a, there was a joke in the, the, my remote dying for the PowerPoint, because I'm sure some of you were like, maybe we could be spared Matt's artwork this Sunday. But no such luck, I rescued the PowerPoint, and you will have to deal with my artwork this Sunday. This is not my artwork, although it would be impressive if it was. Um, but this Sunday, we have the, um, the fourth of, of sort of the seven signs that make up the core of John's gospel, which are these revealings of what, of who Jesus is in this moment, is is we haven't talked about it a lot yet, but in, in most of the church here, this is the season called Epiphany. And it means like what you think of when you think, I had an epiphany. And so with these signs, we're seeing the epiphanies of who God is. We're seeing these revelations of who God is. And so this is the fourth sign, which is this feeding of 5,000. And this one appears in all four of the Gospels. And We've talked about this before, but there isn't a whole lot of material that appears in all four of the Gospels. Um, but this one particularly appears in each spot in, in all four of the Gospels. And the story is very similar, although John tells it in his own distinct way in some ways. But this is one that sort of takes up space in each of the Gospels. And there's an interesting question about why, right? I mean, if one, it's miraculous. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And if if you have most translations, it says there were 5,000 men, which means who knows how many women and children there were, right? Um, so Jesus feeds a whole host of people. It's miraculous in that, but Jesus does lots of miraculous things. So why is this one so critical to be preserved in all of the Gospels? One of the reasons I think for that is this is this relationship it has to, to Moses. This is, this is manna falling from heaven. And the thing, it's a little small, but the thing I like in this icon is this is Christian art, so it's not Jewish art. And you see Moses looking up to Jesus in heaven as the manna falls in the wilderness, um, which is an interesting way of portraying this scene, um, that Jesus is there present in it. And as you read the rest of this sort of passage, this bread of life passage, it's going to move to that too. Now, I should make a note about where we're going. Next week, I'm going to talk about the man born blind, which is the fifth sign and then the week after that, David is going to talk about the fifth sign, which is situated right sort of in the middle of this discourse about Jesus walking on water. And then the, the last Sunday of this series, we're going to talk about the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. Um, and that, you know, these seven signs, you think they must be spread out equally through the gospel. That happens around chapter 12, and there's still a lot left. It seems there's this revelation. We talked about how the book is divided into this book of signs sort of characteristic. It's the first half contains these signs for us to sort of believe in Jesus, and the second half contains more teaching and instruction on who he is, particularly to his disciples, not to everyone or the crowds, but to his disciples. And so this reason for this Moses connection, which I think is important, is that Moses, I mean, if you were to think about critical figures in Israel's history, you would mainly come up with Moses and David are the two sort of peak figures. They have prophets and other people like that. But Moses is one who meets with God. He sees God face to face. He's one who's, who's known to be in deep relationship with God. And so one of the things as Jesus appears on the scene is how is he a new Moses for his people? How is he a new Moses at this moment? And so Jesus at this scene becomes like Moses and, and the one who feeds in the wilderness, right? 
Moses feeds, or God, as Jesus will tell them, feeds them manna from heaven in the midst of the wilderness when they're about to starve to death. So Jesus, in this scene, becomes like Moses, and this is why it's in all four Gospels, is he becomes, uh, in a way, more like Moses so that we can see him as one who uh, fixes that figure. So as Jesus seems to multiply it in himself, he multiplies the bread as he gives it out, as he gives thanks. The bread is multiplied. It doesn't fall from heaven in the sea. But it's something about who he is that's bringing this out. It's something about who he is that's making this. Now, what John's telling, he mentions that they go off on a mountain twice, too, which is something that connects it to Moses as well, as Moses is this one who goes up on the mountain, and he comes down and he radiates with God's presence. So that there's something about this scene that's this, that connects to the mountains. And so this is this time where Jesus sort of puts himself in this claim of Moses. Now, one of the things is interesting, if you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is in Matthew, that's a Sermon on the Mount. They're on a mountain, and Jesus gives a new teaching and a new law. Who's he acting like when he does that? Moses. It's very critical that if Jesus is going to be this new liberator for Israel, if he's going to bring them into a new life and a new promised land, it's, it's critical that in some ways he represent Moses to them, that, that he sounds in that register because that's the register of liberation. And you'll note in John's telling, which isn't in all the other tellings, it says that it's on the day of the Passover. It's the day of the Passover, which is that celebration of that liberation from Egypt, Right? And so this is this another connection to who is Jesus as this new Moses. And it's interesting, John preserves sort of three Passovers for Jesus' life. And he goes for Israel, he goes to Jerusalem for two of them. Um, but this one, he's out here in, in the hillside. He's out here among the people. And what happens is, and, and sort of as we go through this, think of that Moses connection, um, because it's vital to sort of understanding why this one is so important in the Gospels. But what happens is, is, is at the start of the scene is that 5,000 people sort of come towards Jesus. Um, there's a huge crowd that comes towards him, and, they're, and they're, they're coming to him because they've seen the signs and what he's done in the sick. Now, one of the things we've talked about on why John's Gospel has been written is that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The people who are coming to Jesus at this moment have seen the signs of what he's done, and they're coming to receive more signs. But this conclusion that comes from the end of John's Gospel says that the signs are there to point to something. The signs aren't there to be the thing in themselves. They're, they're there so that you may find belief in Jesus and have life in his name. Now, many of us probably know people who are like this, who come to Jesus uh, for, for the signs. This is the Greek word for signs. Um, uh, Simeon. Um, who comes to Jesus for these signs, right? Is that Jesus does miraculous things, so I have to come to Jesus. I should be around Jesus for these miraculous things. But what happens with the signs and these miracles in John's Gospel is that they're, they're more oriented towards something deep. They're like something projected on a veil that's lifted up to reveal what's actually behind it. See, the signs aren't the thing themselves. The signs point to the thing themselves. What happens in our lives 
what happens in Christians' lives, what happens in this scene, is that people think the signs are the thing themselves. The signs are why we gather around Jesus. Now, it's, it's interesting, though, on the other side, is that we're, um, this is a little inside baseball, but we're not like a very charismatic church, I guess I would say. We believe in the Holy Spirit's gifts and its empowerment for our life to go out and do mission, but we don't do a lot of signs and wonders and miracles in Defiance Church. And so I was thinking about this week, what does it mean to see it from the reverse side, too? Like, that Jesus does contain these things within himself. That Jesus does do miracles and have power. That Jesus can enlighten our lives. I mean, there's this one side of like, hey, we're not those people who go out to be signs. He's too weak to do anything like that. I mean, it's sort of what you can fall into. I'm not saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to speak in tongues all the time. That's not really my goal here. Just to point out that you can get proud that you're not the type of person who goes to see Jesus because of signs, but it's maybe because you don't believe that Jesus has the power to do signs. And so I think the critical part for, for as we look at the scene is in this time, it was very easy to believe that somebody was a miracle. Well, not easy, but it was more possible for lots of people to believe that this person is a miracle worker who does signs. Let's get near to him so that we can see signs, right? In our time, it's much harder to believe that. So we think, well, at least we're free from that error. But if we free ourselves from that error, we have to not do it in a way that says there's not power here. There's not the ability to restore life. There's not the ability, and the most importantly, for a resurrection to conquer the grave. Right? We need to keep open that place that Jesus can do these things. Sure, we're, we're the enlightened ones enough to maybe pick up that it's the thing behind that it's pointing to. But we need to see the power that's in there. See, that the first one was uh, preaching to the people who weren't here, but the second example might be preaching to the people who are here, um, which is, you know, it's easy to just fall in love with the signs and follow Jesus to wherever the hot spot the Spirit is moving in the valley or in the world or in the community and make that your life. And you miss that it might be something more that this is pointing to. But it's also critical that we accept that Jesus has this power. Now, moving on, there's, there's this great comical point where Jesus sees these 5,000 people coming and says to Philip, where shall we buy bread? Um, it says, if, if you read it, that, that he's, as Chris read, is that he's testing him. But it's, it's interesting. Philip is from near where the scene is taking place. And so it's almost like, hey, 5,000 people show up to Defiance Church. Where shall we get bread for this? So I would ask somebody who's close to here, and they'd be like, Safeway. Um, but it's not very good bread, but City Market doesn't have much better bread. I mean, it would be, many of you know I'm a bread snob, so like, where would we get bread? Denver, get in your car and go. There's no good bread near here, just let it go, man. Um, where will we get bread? Where will we find bread? Because Jesus, it says, knows what he's going to do, but he's asking Philip this question, much like he could be asking us this question, is, is what have you perceived in me so far? We've seen what Jesus has done at Cana. We've seen what Jesus has done by telling the man to pick up his mat and walk. We've seen what Jesus has done in these healings and these openings. I'm missing one of the signs. Healing at the pool, second sign. Uh... Oh, healing the guy's son from a distance. We've seen what Jesus has done with his words. And so he's asking Philip somewhat, do you think we, we can do this, right? Do you think that there's something we can do to feed all these people? 
Now, Philip would re replies in a way that's very similar to the way I think many of us would reply. Uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each of them a little. $7,000 worth of bread. Uh, in your Bible, it may have a footnote that a denarii is worth um, uh, a day's wages. 200 days' wages would not be enough to feed all these people. Now, if you're me, you, you might be thinking, is there even a place where they could buy this? Do they have bread bakeries near here that if they had 200 denarii, that like the guy would be like, well, lucky for you, I overbaked today. And I have enough loaves for 5,000 people. Um, you know, it's a... It's an interesting, like, practically, see, this is, I guess, so Philip's uh, sin is, is how would we pay for this? My sin is like, where would you even get it? Um, money's not the issue. It's where would you even find this stuff? But we have, we have this tendency in our own life to, to deal with Jesus this way. Is that we need Jesus to show up and make something here. We need Jesus to make life here. And what happens is we respond with, like, it's just impossible, right? There's no way we could feed all these people. There's no way we could reach all this need. He has this excuse sort of built in to this. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting, the, um, Moses asks the same question in Numbers. It's, it's sort of, how am I going to feed all these people? How am I going to provide food for everyone here? What we have is this God who, who responds to people's physical and real needs, Right? God does not want to abandon our bodies and our goodness of what he's created. He doesn't want us to just turn away from him. I mean, if we, if, if as the sermon goes on, it becomes clear that this is pointing to a sign beyond this, which I think it is, and that's good to hold. But Jesus still reaches needs in the present, responds to what's in front of him. How are we going to feed all these people? Philip pulls out the budgetary sheet. We have Brian Ramsey to do that here to tell me, Matt, no. We don't have 200 days wages to pay for bread for all of these people. And so Philip has this, this moment with Jesus here. And then Andrew, which is weird, chimes in and says, there's a boy here. Now my bread doesn't look like good bread either. Uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? It's interesting. There's multiple ways you can read Andrew's sermon. Is Andrew saying that, you know, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish so we can eat? Um, there's enough for us. Is he responding in that, hey, there's something. Maybe we can find other people who have more food to get them to share it too, and maybe we can take care of this. Is he responding in faith? Is he, is he the one who seems to be showing faithfulness here at this moment? Having seen what Jesus has done, saying, here, five loaves, two fish, go. It doesn't seem like it's that positive of a portrayal of what he's doing. But Andrew has sort of perceived something else in the boy. Now, how many people can stand the Andrews in their life? Hey, look, this looks impossible. And somebody's like, yeah, but there are five loaves and two fish. Shut up and go away. Um, like, I don't need to know what we have at the moment. I need to know it's impossible. Quit. Quit pointing out to me that something else might might be able for us, right? Um, I think that that for me is at least my temptation is that like you know I'm in my Philip mode where would we buy the bread or where how could we afford the bread? And then there's somebody on the side who's like, oh, there's hope. We have five loaves and two fish. You know, whether he's expecting a miracle or not, at least he's portraying something that God is capable. God has power. 
um, or that we have something, you know, that not all is lost at the moment because there are five loaves and two fish. And often the Andrews in my life feel like they're pointing out something as insignificant as five barley loaves and two fish. But if, if you follow the, um, the Greek here too, the barley loaves are like food for the poor. They're not like hearty. This is not like, we have two amazing sourdough loaves or big cinnamon loaves or, or uh, big bread to feed. They're, they're food for the poor. And the two fish, I, there's debate on this, but are almost this, they're not like this. They're more the equivalent of like sardines. Like we have two dried fish for this. Basically what we have is this boy's lunch is what we have. Now I know some of you, this is the joys of being the pastor at Defiance Church because I find this interesting as well. You, you don't need to put a lot of stock in this, but you'll say, well, why five loaves? Moses writes the five books of the Torah, which are considered the bread of life for the people of Israel. They're, they're the place where they go for their, their main meal is the Torah. When we walk through the Torah, which we'll do numbers this summer, there's this, um, there's this uh, rabbi saying that the, that the Torah is the real deal and the rest is just commentary. Which, if you watch the way the story plays out from the Torah, it does seem like that, right? Is that the Torah is God's revelation for how Israel shall be in the world, and the rest is commentary on the ways in which they fail, distort, don't live up to it, live up to it, go backwards, um, and then wait it wrongly, right? So if you read the prophetic literature, it's about, okay, so you guys have, have made your feasts this way, you've done it this way, but actually they were pointing to justice and goodness, and you've just gone by the law, right? So that the rest is just commentary. So why five loaves? Well, if, from a certain perspective, it's the Torah that Jesus is sort of multiplying and bringing out to the people. Why two fish? Less less uh, confident in the answers on this one. Where the most of this happens amongst the early Christian commentators of the first three hundred years, because they're really into numbers and numerology. Um, but it's also the 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 world the text was written in, right? So maybe John is thinking that we should read something into this, and, and we've just moved away from that. But but the, the, the general answer seems to be that it's the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's, the, it's this literature that, that complements the Torah. Um, it's this uh, other sort of thing. And so we have this these two, these five loaves and these two fishes. And what, what Jesus says then, moving on from weird number stuff, is... Um, is he has everybody take a seat in the grass. Jesus at this moment, like he did at Cana of Galilee, is he becomes the host to a meal. Like when he takes over at Cana, we talked about this, is he sort of becomes the host in his own way. Here, when he says, everybody take a seat. And this is something that, that if you've been to family Thanksgiving or um, a big meal or like a wedding ceremony where everybody's standing around and kneeling and somebody says, everybody take a seat. Something changes in the room at that moment. Something different happens. And so Jesus says, it's time for everybody to take a seat and to gather on a grassy hill. And this is where uh, Jesus is sort of becomes this host for us, which leads the way the host in our lives. I mean, for Jews, the way in which they would pray and celebrate at each meal would be a way of sort of displaying that God is always the host at everything. 
And so for us, as we talked about this in Leviticus, is that, is that each meal, each table is hosted by God. Each place is a moment where we can offer and give up thanks and respond to God. And Jesus, Jesus does exactly that. He, he, uh, this is the Greek word. He, he gives thanks for the bread. Now, the reason why I put up the Greek word for this is this is Eucharistia, which is where we get the phrase Eucharist, which is what we say that, you know, half the Christians call the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, half call it communion. If I say three halves, I'm not doing math correctly. A third <laughs> call it the Lord's Supper, a third call it communion, and a third call it Eucharist. Um, if I said a half, a half, a half, that's 150%. Um, strong math skills for your pastor. Um but it, this Eucharistio is sort of what Jesus calls out here. And one of the interesting parts about John's Gospel is John's Gospel does not have the upper room meal scene, the Passover scene that we know so well and celebrate every Sunday. It doesn't have that scene in which Jesus is with the disciples and he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. This is where John sort of puts that scene. Does anybody know what takes the place in John? The, the foot washing scene is that he instructs them in a different way of power in that scene. He doesn't have them do communion in that scene. He instructs them in a different way of being with each other. Um, and so we'll get into that as, as in the next sort of sermon series as we move towards Easter. But that's what takes the place there is this foot washing scene, which is why in some traditions in the church, when you take communion, you also do a foot washing. You're close in proximity. You do a foot washing and communion together because they seem tied in some but Jesus offers his bread up and offers a prayer as a Eucharistio, as a, as a way of sort of blessing this for the people. And as a host, he offers this thanksgiving. And what's, what's weird in, in, in the other Gospels is it seems like the disciples are the involved in the serving of this. In John's Gospel, it almost seems like Jesus is standing there like I am, like, come grab your bread, grab your fish, move along, and everybody comes up. And it says everybody eats their fill. Like, everybody is, is given an abundance. And so looking at the excuses is that, is that we look at the world through this scarcity lens. Everything is scarce and must be protected and preserved. Everything costs money. The weird thing is Jesus doesn't look at the world that way. Jesus sees abundance. Not only that, offers abundance. Let's think about this in terms of grace. Let's think about this in terms of the life that God offers us. So much of what we want to do is bound up in trying to make everything right and to do it. And yet, and yet God is one who has lavish abundance for us. It's something we saw in the, in the wedding scene. Is he made 700 bottles of wine at the end of the party for these people. That, that John is portraying this sort of abundance that comes out of who Jesus is. This abundance of who he is and, and how it moves beyond us. And so Jesus as the host and he invites the people to sit in the grass and offers this thanksgiving that, that can move into our lives and to every table. He becomes um, uh, one who offers this gift for us that goes beyond. Now one of the amazing parts about, about John's gospel, the signs, many of them, is that they're there for something afterwards. Like, like, if you wonder what the sign points to, there's a teaching often afterwards that doesn't. And in John's Gospel, it comes right afterwards. There's this teaching um, where he talks about the bread. He, he disappears in, 
and walks on the water, which is something that David will talk about. And, and, it, and it's interesting because there's 5,000 people here. And they, at the end of this passage, they seize him and sort of want to make, or they want to seize him and make him king. 5,000 men is like an army. So what Jesus perceives at this moment, if they seize him and bring him to Jerusalem to make him king, that's not his mission. It's part of why he fades and, and moves away at that scene. And even more so, it's why he, he moves towards disappointment after. Because what happens is in the next teaching part of this, when they find him again, they ask him about, Moses gave us manna, can you give us manna? Can you make this? And then he says, you work for things. You guys work for bread you can store up. But I'll give you something that will never run out. It calls for trust and faith. Going back to that end of John's gospel, these words are written so that you might believe and have life in his name. He's asking them to, to sort of stop looking at things as just, how can I earn this? How can I make this? How can this come into the world? How can this be this way? And they say that, that Moses gives this bread to us, and, and this is Jesus' response. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. What's this sign pointing to? What's this miracle pointing to? pointing to that Jesus is the bread of life who gives life to the world. Now it spins out of control after this, right? Because this is the scene, and I've, I've made this joke before, but I've read the John 6 sort of portion to bless communion once, and it was awkward. Because Jesus is very clear, like, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And there's this phrase I always tell people, is like, don't try to one-up Jesus. Um, so like, if you're like, well, I know the end of the world, I'm like, you don't, because Jesus doesn't. So don't try to one-up Jesus. Or, you know, I can make it through the Christian life without any suffering. Well, Jesus didn't, so the likelihood that you can is, is not likely. So don't try to one-up Jesus. Well, on this one, I tried to one-up Jesus unintentionally. was like, I can read this passage, and people won't go, this is a hard teaching. Which is the response they have in the gospel. When Jesus says that he must eat my body and drink my blood. And what happens is the crowds begin to disperse at that moment. These crowds that were going to seize him and try to make him king can't handle that teaching. So when I read that to bless communion and everybody came up awkwardly, it was like, it didn't go well for him. What in the world made me think it would go well for me? <laughs> um, uh, don't do that. Um, and yet that's sort of the world that that this sort of moves into, is that Jesus has this way of sort of diffusing this sort of situation to point to himself, to point to the way that he is this manna in this life that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. So the scene ends with these two, there are these 12 loaves. He says, don't let anything go to waste. They gather it up and they have more than they began with, these 12 loaves. Now this is one that's easy to figure out what this one means, is that this is, the, this is him regathering the lost tribes of Israel in the form of his disciples. He's gathering that which is lost and putting it back together again. He's providing provision for them to go into the future. That, the, that these 12 loaves signify that God is reconstituting something here in the world. He's making something again. So these 12 loaves are for these disciples and for the sign that he is, is bringing something out of this. 
-hmm. So this brings us to sort of the the final sort of point for today is that this arrow is something that points to something beyond. Like we come to these miracles, we come to these signs. And the challenge for, for us as it was for them is to see what's beyond this, to see the way that Jesus is fulfilling this life and making making this bread for the world. That he's the manna that came down from heaven. He's taken up residency near us. He's come to meet our needs and to be with us. So do we serve hungry people as Christians? I mean, this is the challenge. And yes, and then there are Christians who say the whole Christian life is feeding people. They miss the arrow, right? And yet on the other side of the coin, there are people who say it's all about the arrow, right? There are people who say Christians don't need to feed people anymore. They just need to point them up to who Jesus is. What is the sign that's going to lift their heads? What is the way in which they, if, if you don't have the sign anymore, if you don't have the fulfillment, if you don't have the gift of people going to do that, what's going to cause them to lift their heads and see what's beyond? Because we see the imperfect, as, as First Corinthians said, it's like, and when the perfect comes, we won't need the signs anymore. But to think that we go out and we say, hey, we don't feed hungry people, we just offer the thing behind the sign. We don't understand that humans still see in part. That's why God still meets us in healing and abundance and care and giving new life. So that, that in our weakness, we can begin to perceive and see what's beyond. That God can, can meet us and draw our heads up to see what the real point is. To see what's being foreshadowed. I mean, maybe the real point isn't the best language. To see what's being foreshadowed. To, to say the real point is to say that this is a fake point. It's the more real. Um, it's the thing in which we are being drawn into. Because what's going to happen as we move towards, towards remembering the supper is Jesus, as I said, he's the host. He also is the feast. He gives himself and his life and his body for us. He isn't just the host who wants credit for that, but he's also one who dumps himself out, who lets himself be, be extinguished on a cross so that we might have life. Jesus is the one who, who becomes this meal for our benefit and our sake. He takes on the burdens of that. takes on the heaviness of that, and brings new life, a new constitution into the world, a new people. It happens on the Passover. Jesus is our new Moses who brings a new people out into the world. Let us pray.